Welcome to Unconventional Thinkers. My name is Kawan Saluja. On this episode, we speak with Lucia Capicchioni, best-selling author of 23 books, including Recovery of Your Inner Child, The Creative Journal, and The Power of Your Other Hand. Among the topics we cover include what is creative journaling, the tools that she has relied on to get through these crazy times, and how Carl Jung was the first art therapist. That and more on this episode of Unconventional Thinkers. Well, thank you again, Lucia. It's a great uh, thrill and honor to interview uh, you again. Um, it's been a while as we were kind of commenting off camera. Um, and as usual, there are so many different ways that I could start, whether it was the, uh, the creative journaling, the non-dominant handwriting and, and uh, drawing um, and, you know, the visioning. But I kind of wanted to start with, um, you know, obviously this has been a really trying time for a lot of people. Um, some Some of the challenges that you have faced and some of the challenges that you have how to help, um, you know, you've been helping people for so many years. Um, and, you know, some of the challenges you face as well, some of the challenges that the people you interact with, whether it's your clients or just close friends have had to, and how to navigate through that. Yeah, yeah, it's been very difficult. Um, I lost a friend to COVID. She was a work associate. Um, and I've had um, more deaths than I can count in the last few months. Not from COVID necessarily, but just um, people who were ill or aging or, you know, whatever. And uh, so on top of the pandemic for the last couple of years, um, losing a lot of uh, very close personal friends that I've known since the 60s and 70s has been really difficult. So this has been a very hard time for me personally, like everybody else. And I have been so grateful for these tools. Uh, I have I have not done this much journaling uh, since I went through my life-threatening illness in 73 and was in bed and doing journaling all day to save my life. And uh, I, I seriously mean that. I, I have not clocked this many hours in a journal in the, that many years. Yeah. It's, it was a lifesaver for me. Yeah. Well, I, I, I think that was, uh, you know, one of the questions was, uh, you know, you know, prior to this, you know, that is this something that was creative journaling and get into the details, but is this something that was meant to do be done every day? Um, uh, you know, a consistent amount of times, obviously you said you've done more journaling. Um, is it, um, well, I don't, I don't do it every day, and I don't recommend that people put that pressure on themselves because I know personally, if you tell me to do something every day, I won't. Yeah. <laughs> so uh, I don't want to do that to anybody else. What I have found, and I've gotten feedback from a lot of my clients and, and people that I'm training, professionals, is that um, there are days when um, we all report doing lots of journaling and there are days when we don't do any journaling. Uh, and it just kind of rises up when we need it. We, we know we have that tool. And um, if we're really in a crunch, uh, we might spend um, a couple of hours um, working in the journal doing uh, anything from scribbling to writing to collage to you name it, um, using the non-dominant hand for a lot of emotional expression release and that sort of thing, 
or using collages to create a positive image because we've had so much negative imaging the last couple of years in our world and in our politics has just been hideous with all of the violence. And so there's a point at which um, uh, not necessarily long-term visioning about a specific goal, but just putting out some positive pictures, um, you know, like creating a safe place or, um, you know, finding images that are soothing or peaceful or calming or um, that feel protective, you know, whatever the state of being that we want to experience right now and just finding photographs that illustrate that. And uh, it hasn't got so much to do with long-term career planning or relocation to another home or, you know, any of that stuff. It's just about what pictures make me feel good right now and putting them in the journal and writing about it. You know, what? when I look at this, um, you know, village in Italy, um, you know, that reminds me of happy times there. Well, how does it make me feel, you know? And and my non-dominant hand might write a response. You know, I feel protected and safe and nurtured and I can smell the scent of great food in the restaurants on the street. And, you know, it bringing the senses alive. Because I think what's happened in the last couple of years, people have had to numb themselves out emotionally and physically. And we can't afford to do that. We've got to stay grounded in our bodies. But if the body's not a pleasant place to be, we want to space out. And so I'm using the journaling a lot to stay grounded, to stay in my senses, to, you know, uh, know that I am safe right here, right now. It's really the kind of work we do with trauma treatment. Well, I mean, I, I think that this is, uh, I don't think it would be overstatement, but I feel like you know, on the whole, this has been probably one of the most traumatic times that I can remember, um, you know, for you to say that this is the most you've uh, journaled since uh, you discovered it, uh, I believe, yeah. in the mid-30s. Um, yeah. The collage thing is really interesting to me because, um, you know, I, I, you know, it, it's just a saying, but someone said a picture's worth a thousand words, but a, but a movie's worth a thousand pictures. And <laughs> so, you know, to be inundated with like more video, and if it's not, uh, the positive variety, which is, you know, not saying there's anything malicious to it, but, you know, there's that saying, if it bleeds, it leads. Um, most of the stuff, like when I get on, you know, no matter how much you curate the internet, um, it's negative, it's skewed negative, like it's it's not that easy to, to kind of, so I love that idea of the collage. Um, and uh, so, but would the process of making be making a collage be similar to the process of making a vision board? I mean, I think you were, uh, you know, carefully pointed out. It's a little more um, focused and um, present oriented and, um, you know, less long-term planning. Okay. In fact, no long-term planning in it. It's just about um, okay, I've got these magazines, and it's really interesting. What I'm doing recently is I'm um, uh, going through old folders of photographs I've saved. And there, it's a big jumble of all kinds of things. Pictures of scenes and people and abstract designs and you name it, just everything in there. And it, I really believe in serendipity. So I go through these folders and I find, oh, wow. 
I really need this picture today. Here's a picture of somebody sitting in a meditation garden. I've been really rattled today and the news last night was horrible and da da da. So yeah, but and that's the top picture on the pile. <laughs> it's the perfect picture. So I put that in. Then I go through it some more and then I find some phrases that I had cut out. Um, you know, words like peace, calm, serenity. And I go, wow, do I need those right now? You know, and this is stuff I've been collecting for years. And I and I'm not doing that much editing. It's just like I'm I'm really allowing myself to look at the item and go, is that what I really need right now? Oh yeah, it really is. It's amazing. Where did this come from? You know, occasionally I'll bypass a couple of things, but most of the things that are coming up are exactly what I need. I find the same thing true when I go through magazines. Um, is is this something that is always done like in a tactile way? Is there a digital yes, way to do yes. this? It's not you, you know, you really can't get the same results with digital because number one, you're handling things, you're touching stuff. So that keeps you grounded. Oh. And number two, there is a randomness about magazines, or as I said, my photo collection that you can't control. And you're allowing yourself for this kind of serendipity thing to happen. It's like, oh, I wasn't looking for that, but that's a perfect photograph right now. That really said, or maybe I'm um, not visioning positive things, but I'm looking for images that express how I feel. And I opened the magazine and there's a picture of um, a guy standing in a ditch. And he's telling a story about something that had to do with this ditch and i look at that photograph and i go oh man that's exactly how i felt this morning that's a perfect image so i tear that out of the magazine now if i were going through archives online digital archives of photographs i would never find stuff like that you know or things shattering you know archival photographs on online generally aren't going to give you this kind of, uh, as I say, serendipitous random element that allows you to see things in a new way. That magazine story was not designed for me to express how I felt this morning. That wasn't its goal. But that's how I use it. I repurpose it. So it's all about repurposing all these images and words that we find in a magazine. And that's a mental and emotional process that you can't really get online very well um that makes a, a lot of sense earlier you you talked about that um you can't just numb out uh, which is you know kind of the uh, behavior what are the costs of you know doing that i think for lost for long periods of time um well when you numb out of your body you're going to eventually uh, and at the same time numb out of your emotions because your emotions live in your body so if you're not in touch with your body then you're not going to be in touch with your real feelings and of course those are all the things that drive people into addiction i want to get out of my feelings i want to get out of my body look at the words we use getting high what does that mean that means getting out of your body that means just rising right out and you're not there anymore wow yeah now uh we we talked about journaling um you have a very unique kind of really brilliant creative way i think based on all kinds of different factors what is journaling 
Um, well, you know, the creative journal method, which is the term that I use, is really about drawing and then writing. And the drawing comes first because what we want to get into the emotions. And drawing is a very right brain activity. And the right brain is the only real access into our emotions. You're not going to get there through the left brain. Alan Shore, um, the great psychologist, has written a great deal about this. There's a bunch of books about it. And he even talks about right brain to right brain therapy when you're working with a therapist. It's the therapist's right brain connecting with your right brain. Emotions, body language, intuition. That's all the stuff that therapy is made of. And it has to go through the right brain because we want to get into the limbic system, which is inside deep in the brain. And that's where emotions get stored. It's like a little closet in there. And when we're dealing with panic and trauma, which we've been doing constantly for the last couple of years, anxiety, depression, uh, we are storing a whole bunch of emotions in that closet, that limbic system. And the only way we're going to be able to get to them in a way that is manageable is through therapy and or journaling. And um, the journaling is safe. It's private, just like therapy is. It has to be confidential. Those are the ground rules. Otherwise, it doesn't work. There's no point. So I tell people, if you're not going to keep your journal safe and private, then don't, don't think you're going to get personal growth out of it. You're not. Because you're worried about, oh, oh, if my husband sees this, if my wife sees it, or my girlfriend, oh, you know, oh, I have to edit my remarks. I can't put that down. Oh, what if somebody sees this? You're done. So don't think of it as personal growth if you're worried about anybody else's reaction. So you have to take precautions to keep that journal completely private. You know, lock it up, whatever you have to do, hide it. I don't know. Yeah. Um, and uh, so you just to get the process right, you said you always draw and then write. Um, what about, uh, so is that drawing with the non-dominant hand? Uh, is it a combination of the two? Well, you can draw with either hand. Um, it, let me put it this way. If you're drawing with your dominant hand, you're um, using both sides of your brain. Um, primarily the right side, because that's a visual spatial activity. That's what the right brain uh, function is, visual spatial um, activities. You know, And um, if you're drawing with your non-dominant hand, that's the hand that didn't go to school and learn to read and write. And so that hand has really direct, powerful access to the right brain. And when you're drawing with that hand, you're almost completely in your right brain. So that's a place to really get those right brain emotions out. And also to experience yourself in space on the page. What's happening? In the, this is a mindfulness practice. What's happening on the page right now with this crayon or this marker I'm using? And you get lost in that page. And you get lost in that experience of working with that color. And now I'm going to add another color. And what happens if I put this color over that color? Now we're into the land of the artists. This is what artists do. They experiment with their medium. They've got to find out what does this medium do? This is what children do. I, my second career was in child development. And when I watch children work with 
paint and clay and crayons and markers. That's all they're doing. They're finding out what does this do to the point of putting it in their mouths. Well, how does it taste? Right. What happens if I bite on it? What happens if I draw on the wall with it? You know, what happens if I draw on the desktop with it? <laughs> they're just experimenting. It's a science experiment. Right. with materials like well what is this thing what does it do yeah and and i want to get grown-ups back into that mindset that grounds them you're in your body when you're experimenting with art materials you have to be right what does um i i'm sure a couple questions what is the difference between working with how do adults and children or kids i should say react differently to your work i'm sure this has been asked before slightly differently yeah Adults are all in their heads. They're all worried about whether it looks good and who's going to say what about it and their opinions and criticism. Their inner critic jumps in immediately. Uh, Oh, I don't have any talent. They they throw words like that around. You never hear that from children. I have never heard a three or four-year-old say I don't have any talent. They don't even know what that word is. They start talking like that when they get to school. So show me a a five or a six-year-old and I'll start showing you some of that grown-up language about, oh, this is ugly and, you know, I can't draw because somebody told them that. But before they go to school, they don't know from that. They just, they know from what it is. Just like anything else that children do. They're experimenting with the environment. They have to touch everything, you know, they have to explore physically, sensorially. That was the brilliance of Maria Montessori, whose method I'm trained in. She taught through sensorial materials. And she worked with preschool children and got them ready for school. And then she also had educational programs for older kids. But her brilliance was that she understood that children learn through material things. And so she designed a whole line of material things to teach them stuff, like the alphabet. She taught them to write before they read because she gave them alphabet letters to trace with their hands. And if they got it into their nervous system and into their bodies, then they could read very easily because reading was an extension of their body experience, not just a visual learning by rote kind of thing. Wow. That's why Montessori kids, my daughters went to Montessori school. And they could read when they were three, four years old. But that's because they learned to write first. <laughs> it's complete reversal of the way we teach reading. Yeah. Uh, I, I mean, in some ways, it feels like, I mean, if there was a way, if there was a program to intentionally uh, take away, um, you know, creativity, it could be conventional schooling. So, Oh, absolutely. It's guaranteed. Yeah. What other things? I mean, I didn't send my kids to conventional schools. They went to Montessori and then they went to Oakwood in North Hollywood, which is a school that was developed by um, uh, some uh, actors in Hollywood. And they wanted a creative education for their kids. And everything was taught through the arts there. You know, they made their own books. They illustrated their own stories. When they learned history, they did plays about it. They wrote stories about it. You know, they wrote songs about it. So the, all the arts were used in the service of learning. And, um, you know, my kids loved school. They had a great time. What, uh, were, you know. <laughs> what, uh, what other things, uh, 
where you know the the school that your kids went to or also the montessori method i mean that is like that blows my mind about the writing before the reading and the reasons why and i mean it's like you know totally looking at those things in a almost different way um what other things did the montessori system uh you know teach versus oh, she she believed as i do and my work is totally based on this philosophy that we have our own inner wisdom and guidance and we need to honor that and so there is very little group learning in a montessori classroom it's more like a library all of the sensorial materials are displayed and you go and get whatever attracts you you go and get it and you work with it and then you take it back to where you found it just like a library so it's an organized, prepared, she called it a prepared environment. And the kids are moving around all the time. They have to go get the stuff and then I want to play with the pink uh, cubes. All right. There's a whole stack of pink cubes that she has in her repertoire of wonderful materials that she designed. And it's a, a teacher's gradation from large to small. Now, this is stuff you see in kindergartens. You see it in toy stores. You know, it's nothing new. But she was the one that codified all this stuff into teaching gradation and size and all that, but all doing it sensorially. So the kid goes and gets all the pink uh, uh, cubes in their different sizes and puts them out on a mat on the floor and builds with it and then takes it apart and puts it back on the shelf. There, She had two cubes that teach the binomial and the trinomial theorem sensorially. So they learn it at that level when they were three, four years old by putting these color-coded cubes back together in a box. And then a little bit later on, the teacher would sit them down and say, oh, you know, that? bring the cubes over here from that box. I'm going to teach you some math about that. And then they'd teach them the trinomial or binomial theorem, depending on which cube set they have. It's brilliant. It's absolutely brilliant. Yeah, I mean, one of the things that really you know, occurred to me too, is, uh, you know, the conventional system seems to eliminate the art and the creativity from a subject. Oh, completely. That's the first thing to go. Sports stays in the, in the curriculum, so to speak, as an extracurricular, but the arts are the first thing to go. Absolutely. Now I created a program under federal funds in 1981-82 in the Garvey district in Southern California, east of East LA. And we were working with Cambodian boat children and a lot of um, Latino immigrants from Central and South America and Mexico. And so there was a lot of trauma in that population, obviously, the boat children. There are villages that have been burned down. And I was hired by the Garvey District to come in and create a basic skills using arts program for two pilot schools, K through six and K through three. And it was an incredible program. We had a year. The funding was cut back after that uh, during the Reagan administration. But um, we had one full year of funding. And I trained the teachers to teach social studies and sciences from the textbook, but using guidelines that I wrote, manuals that I wrote, teaching that material through the arts. So if they were learning about the water cycle, they had to do a dance about what it felt like to be in rain and that water. And then what happens to the water? 
and they would do these whole body movement experiences and explorations of the water cycle physically. Then they would draw pictures of it or do collages of it. You know, so everything in science was taught through the arts. And um, reading and math scores went up as high as 20 percentile points wow. in one year in that district. And a lot of these children were non-English speaking when they came to school. So they've got the added, all right, they've got number one trauma. They've had travel from a totally different culture. They're acculturating to the United States and they don't speak the language. And reading and math scores went up 20% points in some classes. That was the highest that went in, in these two schools. And we had the highest test scores on standardized testing in the entire district, in the history of the district, wow. in those two schools. So that was, in a sense, a control group study because we're comparing that to the rest of the, the school district. Yeah. Um, what, I mean, what are some of the influences, um, you know, on, on, your, on your work or the training that you had, um, you know, whether it was like, voice dialogues or things like that? Or was it more your career? Um, well, uh, voice dialogue was a big um, a big impact on me. That was developed by Helen Sidderstone. And I had the great pleasure and honor of uh, training with Hal and having private therapy with uh, Sidra. So I um, used the method personally and um, in my own life. And I... Uh, then trained with Hal to use it with others. And I adapted it to my journal work. And that's where um, I really understood the value of something I had already developed before I ever met them. But I realized that dialoguing with both hands and allowing the dominant hand to ask questions and be the interviewer or the therapist, as it were, and the non-dominant hand to answer um was really voice <clears throat> it was voice dialogue but i had discovered it in a written form and they were doing it in a, a more of a an embodied gestalt kind of you know psychodrama form okay uh, because in in voice dialogue the therapist interviews the individual's subpersonalities um and identifies what they are um now uh what uh were you journaling at all um uh, prior to and and talk about you know we kind of alluded to it how you came into your method and how it saved your life and i'm curious if you were journaling at all like prior to that you know um uh age yeah i um i had kept a diary for a little while when i was a kid when i was in my teens but it was very boring because i was just uh cataloging things I was doing and it was got pretty boring so I didn't continue with it and I didn't see any big value in it um I think uh, an aunt had given me a little diary with a you know, lock on it and stuff like that so I um <clears throat> I just didn't take it seriously but when I um was ill in 1973 the big influence on me too were Anais Nin because I was reading her diaries and Carl Jung. I had a book about Jung's work and uh, Man and His Symbols, and it had lots of color illustrations 
of artwork and dreams and stuff about the unconscious and all that. And um, I realized uh, the value of art as a therapeutic modality. I had never thought about that before. I was an artist and I had my second career in child development. So what happened was the two careers kind of blended together in my own healing. And I used art in a journal to um, go inside and introspect about the five years of crisis that had led up to that illness. My parents had separated and divorced. Um, I had gone through a divorce and a separation for my husband meant that our business fell apart because we, we were partners in business. It was five years of chaos. And I moved like four times or something like that. And um, so here I am in bed, talk about sheltering in place because I have no energy, I can't function. And all of a sudden I'm uh, turning my sketchbooks into journals or diaries, whatever you want to call it, inspired by reading these diaries of Anais Din. And I saw very clearly that Anais Din's diary was a therapeutic tool. She was introspecting, really reflecting on her life and her life was changing. And each volume, there were only two or three volumes out at that time. She published a lot more later. But I was noticing the changes in her and how she was coming into her own as a writer and, um, and, and what was happening internally for her. And I thought, wow, this diary thing, this journal idea is powerful. And so my sketchbook started morphing into being a journal with writing in it. And then um, a couple of months into that, I got into therapy and my therapist introduced me to the non-dominant hand wow. just, just as a single technique, not as a journaling technique. She wanted to get me into my inner child because we were doing transactional analysis. And um, she also did gestalt therapy with me, which was kind of a precursor to getting into voice dialogue later on. But she um, had me sit down and right with my non-dominant hand on a big newsprint pad using a big kindergarten crayon. And yeah. I, I, I was taken aback because she wanted me to use my non-dominant hand and I didn't understand why. Well, I understood why pretty quickly because as soon as I started writing and printing with that hand on a, on a big piece of newsprint, I was sitting on the floor. I regressed right away to being about four years old which was around the age four and a half when I learned to write my name before I went to kindergarten. And I, I started lisping the way I did as a kid and I absolutely regressed. And when I was through writing whatever I wrote down there, she said, write down what you want to do this week to apply what you learned in this session. And I wrote, uh, feel my feelings and know they're okay. Something like that. And very slow. With my nine and printing, very large letters, very slow, as if I was just learning to write. And I, besides being a professional artist, I was a calligrapher. Wow. So, I mean, you know, my I, I do hand, handwritten stuff I did at one time for a living. Right. And I, I do incredible chancery cursive, you know, italic handwriting and it's it's masterful work 
And here I am with my non-dominant hand, barely being able to form letters on the page and really regressing. But when I got up off the floor and walked out of that room, I felt like a new person. I could just feel the weight of all that chaos and trauma that I'd been through start to lift off my shoulders. I felt 10 pounds lighter and I just felt like a different person. And then shortly after that, I automatically started writing with my non-dominant hand in my journal. And that, and that was always my inner child in the beginning coming out. But then I discovered a whole cast of characters that would speak through that non-dominant hand including my highest wisdom, my higher power. If I would just ask for guidance, I would get it through that hand as well. So the most fundamental, basic, naive, emotional inner child and the highest inner guidance that I have and everything in between. And anything that feels disowned and not really part of my normal ego state so when you're when you're addressing that's um, unbelievable um i didn't know that uh non-dominant handwriting was part of uh transactional analysis so that's also i came out of that yeah yeah, yeah. um you you, you meant... they weren't they weren't doing they weren't recommending journaling or anything like that they just said this one technique for helping you get into and i don't know that it even came out of transactional analysis per se I know my therapist did it, but she may have learned it somewhere else. No, she just right. did that with her clients. And she only did it a couple of times. It wasn't a regular practice. And she didn't say do it at home. I just automatically started doing it in my journal. Or in, or in bed, you know. Yeah, yeah. Uh, um, so you, you talked about uh, you, what what types of questions do you ask your inner child? And also, like, how would you address, like, how do you separate that response uh, from your high, you know, your higher power, your highest self? Well, with the inner child, I always ask my four basic healing questions. And I ask these questions of the body as well, because that's where the inner child hangs out. The questions are, who are you? Uh, how do you feel? Why do you feel that way? And what can I do to help you? And if I'm asking questions of my higher guidance, I'll just say, uh, I'm having problems with this issue in my life or that person or whatever, this situation. Uh, please give me some guidance. And then I just put the pen in my other hand and I let my inner guide just write. Um, I don't necessarily, and sometimes I might ask a question after it starts writing, but I always ask the questions with my dominant hand. You you mentioned every level in between, and I yeah I think your book uh, recovery um, of your inner child uh -huh. um, that has a very specific sequence. How do you and you talked about the importance of addressing the angry teenager? How did that go for you? Um, you know, and why is that important? Because um, I know when I started doing non-dominant handwriting, I, I felt like I was talking to the same voice a lot, and maybe not addressing other. I mean, even now, I think that's true, now, now that I'm talking to you. Um, well, I, I discovered those really by accident. I uh, That first dialogue I did was a, a child who ended up sassing back to the critic because the critic came in with the dominant hand. And um, I, I just um, 
the child grabbed the, the pen out of my hand, my inner child, and started drawing a picture, drew a picture that looked like a, oh, maybe a three-year-old, this little triangular dress with the round head and the little sticky hands and feet sticking out, you know. It, it, and, it, and it took me aback because here again, I have a background in child development and my specialty was the arts in child development. And I knew about these developmental levels of drawing and I'm going, oh, oh well, what? wait a minute. This is the drawing of a three-year-old here. <laughs> so those are the questions you'd ask of the body if you're having any physical pain of the inner child, if there's any emotional upset. Um, you can have that dialogue with um, an animal, a pet. There's actually a book that was written called Communicating with Animals years ago, in which one of the animal communicators used my non-dominant hand method to communicate with pets after reading my book, The Power of Your Other Hand. Wow. And you have the animal respond with the non-dominant hand. You know, you're writing it. You're channeling it, basically. Uh, I have worked with women. I've written a book, a co-authored a book on childbirth and uh, childbearing. And I've had um, parents uh, dialogue with um, their infant who was in some state of upset. And, of course, you can't communicate in words with an infant. And so you do the non-dominant hand writing and it will channel what's upsetting the child it might be an allergy to a particular food um, an upset of some kind that has to do with a body part with a system in the body then they can get medical help and uh, some amazing results have come out of those dialogues with animals and with children have you ever i'm just curious have you ever uh uh dialogued with uh like a, a nice Nin or Carl Jung? I have, yes. Okay. Yeah, yeah. Okay. yeah I've, I gotten, I've gotten some wonderful um, affirmation from them and also uh, guidance on what I was doing. See, I consider Carl Jung to be the first art therapist. Wow. That is, I never thought a lot, that. A lot, of, a lot of people don't realize that his own journal was a master work. Um, the Red Book, and that got published uh, several years back. It's an amazing, about over 10 years ago, it's an amazing um, book. And he uh, did artwork with his clients. Yeah, he's a big believer in mandalas. And yeah, he, he, he really, I considered him the first art therapist. Yeah. I never thought about that. What, what would be the best uh, first book for someone who's not uh, familiar with uh, I really was influenced by man and his symbols it's a big coffee table book with a lot of colored pictures in it and it's written about his work uh, I also like his work mandala symbolism and in that book he has a lot of the artwork of his clients yeah I, I work yeah I wonder if he had to hide some of the uh spiritual uh well, his break with his break with Freud was very much about his spiritual uh, direction. Absolutely, he didn't. He and and Freud did not agree about that. And he was into um, numerology and astrology and all that kind of stuff. And Freud went, "Oh no, no, we won't be taken seriously as scientists if we talk about that stuff." But Freud knew about that, and Freud believed in it, but he didn't want to talk about it publicly. 
And uh, Jung's attitude was, uh, no, uh -uh. I can't disregard this. I can't ignore it. I can't leave it out. It's got to be part of the equation. Yeah, I mean, I, I think, uh, thank God for that courage, because it's very easy to toe the company line in front of, uh, you know. Well, re remember, Jung had a major break when he broke with Freud. He had a complete breakdown. He, he did? So, okay. Oh, yeah. And his red book shows that. I mean, the artwork in there is very clearly, there's some of it that really shows how he really fell apart. So he had to go through his own fracturing inside to put himself back together again. And that's what he called the the process of the wounded healer. And that's what I went through. Right. So I really resonated with his work because he had been through the same process. I fell apart in 1973. I was physically ill, but emotionally I was falling apart. And what was happening was a new career was emerging, but I didn't know what it was. The, old, the other two careers just were not feeding my soul anymore. And so I, I realized I was in a career crisis as well as a life crisis. I was 35. And that was when Carl Jung talks about the period of individuation in your life. That happens between 35 and 40 or so. Sometimes now it happens a little later because lifespans are longer. Right. But individuation is, you know, we often call it a midlife crisis. It's like we're asking ourselves some real questions like, why am I on the planet? And why do I need to stay on the planet? What am I really doing with my life? Is what I'm doing really satisfying me? Is it feeding my soul or not? Or am I just going through the motions of making a living and doing what everybody else is doing? And anybody who's willing to ask those questions is going to find their individuation. It's like, okay, who am I really personally? Forget about all the programming and the culture and all that. And who my family thinks I am and everybody wants me to be. Who am I? And who do I want to be? That's the question. And he, he asked that question. Anais Nin asked that question. She asked that question in her diary. And so those two people really, and it was interesting. She was talking about the personal unconscious and he was talking about the collective unconscious, which is a term that he coined. Okay. And so as I'm reading her book, it's very personal. It's one woman. I can identify with her. She was raised a Catholic. She was Spanish. I was Italian. You know, I knew her, what her cultural background was. I really understood it. And she became this, free spirit, very creative writer. And um, so she was speaking to me on those very personal terms. And then I'm reading his stuff and I'm seeing artwork from all over the world that is saying the same thing. And, and I'm hearing about the collective unconscious and I'm going, whoa, what's this? <laughs> yeah. I gotta look into this. <laughs> yeah, I, th I, think, I think I found his work maybe through Alice Miller uh maybe four or five years ago and it just planted yeah. a seed uh yeah. the gift of child um you know inner child work is as thrown around a lot in in your opinion what uh kind of mistakes are made in the profession and what kinds of therapies would you recommend again uh because you know all therapy some some therapy i, I feel is like really designed to keep you in one's head well, I'm, you know, I'm an expressive arts therapist as well as an art therapist. And I think that's the best therapy. 
right it gets you out of your left brain and it gets you into the place where your emotions live in your limbic system through the right brain and it gives you um, a creative outlet that can lead to all sorts of things so many of my clients um, and, and this is especially true with inner child work because the language of the inner child is the arts. It's not sitting around talking to a therapist. Right, right. Yeah. So talk therapy is the last thing I would recommend um, where you're just sitting and talking to a therapist. I just, there is no direct link from the left brain language centers into the limbic system. So you're beating on a door that's not there. I'm just not going to open. <laughs> you want to go over the right brain. That's where the arts are. That's where the inner child is. That's where the emotions are. That's where our body sensing is. So, you know, I'll tell you one of the best books about all of this that explains my philosophy is uh, Ian McGilchrist's book, The Master and His Emissary. It's a not an easy book to read. It's written in a very left brain writing style, but the it's worth it. The material is really solid. And he talks from a global cultural point of view, as well as the mechanics of the brain and he says you know the, the reason we're in such a mess is because we idolize the left brain our school systems you know uh, our educational approach everything it's all left brain left brain left brain and we've left out the emotions and so we've got all of this mental illness that's running around rampant now and in a violent form because when you get out of balance the other side becomes toxic. So we've got all this toxic stuff going on with mental health issues. And it's all because we've vitalized power and the left brain and control, right? That's all left brain stuff. The left brain loves control, right. predictability, being in charge. And we've left out what the right brain represents, the body, you know, we we don't honor the body. People don't even know how to listen to their bodies anymore. They have to have a watch that tells them what's going on in their body. I'm sorry, but right. that's not where it's at. Right. That will not keep you in your body. If you've got to go to an outside monitor device every five minutes to tell you whether you're healthy or not, you are not healthy. Sure. Right? Yeah. You've just become OCD and you've gotten mechanized. You're a robot. You're right. not in your body anymore. So right. the art therapies, to answer your question, the art therapies bring you back into your body, just like Montessori did. Okay. Because you're using your body. You're doing movement. You're expressing your emotions through movement, through gesture, through, um, you know, posture. Or you're creating stuff in clay or you're acting it out through in psychodrama. So these are the forms of therapy that are the best for inner child work. And of course, my book, Recovery of Your Inner Child, is about reparenting the inner child. And you asked about what mistakes have been made. The big mistake that was made in the inner child movement of the 90s was um, the missing piece, the family, the inner family. Okay, You cannot do inner child work unless you're doing protective parent and nurturing parent work. You've got to find the parents inside. Otherwise, you've got this 
victimized, vulnerable child, and you're running around trying to get other people to parent your child. You want them to love the inner child in you because you're not doing it for yourself. And that was the big mistake that was made. So you had, you know, people going to ACA meetings and then going out to coffee afterwards and they're all carrying their stuffed animals and they were getting very negative responses in the outside world because that's not an appropriate place to be carrying, a, you know, your animal. Take it home, keep it private. You know, that's your own inner work. You don't need to parade that out in public in front of people who aren't going to understand what the hell you're doing. And they are going to have a negative response. So figure that out in advance. And and don't go, oh, it's horrible because they're laughing at me because I'm carrying my stuffed uh, bear. Right. No, they don't know what you're doing. They didn't go to that ACA meeting you just went to or that therapy session you just went to. They don't know. They're not used to seeing adults walking around clutching a stuffed animal. All right. So you put yourself in an unsafe situation and then you get upset. Right. Well, couldn't you not think that out in advance that you were going to get that response if you went to, you know, a busy coffee shop, sucking your thumb and holding a teddy bear? I'm sorry, but wake up. You know, so what happened was the protective parent was missing. They didn't have boundaries. And they just got re-victimized. Right. And they weren't taking care of their own inner child. They wanting other people to love it, meaning them. And that didn't work out very well, did it? (laughs) So the inner child movement went through a real crisis um, after about 10 years. And I saw it happen because I was in the middle of it. And uh, I just kept on keeping on doing my thing and doing my work and working with clients and knowing that it works. And now I'm seeing a resurgence of it. I've done some ACA meetings last year, uh, big, large meetings online. And uh, there's a whole new generation of people that want inner child work, but they want the real deal. They don't want the the fake pretend stuff. Sure. And so, um, you know, my book is selling better than ever after all these years. It came out in 1991. Yeah. Yeah. Well, well, uh, I really appreciate your time. Where can people find you, uh, your books? Um, well, my and- website, luciac.com, has everything. Description of my training program, because I have the Creative Journal Expressive Arts training program now where I train professionals to use my methods. And um, that has continued online. And we're going to resume um, an additional training back in person. But uh, there's information about that. My books are there. Of course, my books are available online on Amazon or any big bookseller. Um, and but uh, you know they can go to my website and see all the lineup of the books that are in print and some of the audios. Uh, so that's Lucia C L U C I A C dot com. And I'm not doing much private uh, client work anymore because I've got all these people out there trained in my method, and they're all listed at the website. So people can, uh, and they're all over the world. So people can usually find somebody nearby. Most of them working online. So distance doesn't really matter anymore. Um, so I recommend that people, you know, take a look at the site and see what's offered there. Well, thank you again. Um, it's It's been an honor and privilege. Uh, I was saying before we started this uh, 
I mean, it feels a lot longer than uh, two and a half years. Yeah, uh, it's, been, so, so it's just, been the most challenging period of my life, and I've seen a lot. I was raised during the Second World War, uh, and I've seen a lot. Um, you know, the, I went through the Civil Rights Movement as an activist and saw a lot of chaos and death there and worked in Head Start right after the Watts riots. So I, I've seen some major um, upheavals in our history. But this one was, um, you know, a combination of factors that we never could have predicted. It, it's just been pretty grueling. Yeah. So I, I'm hoping that we're coming out the other end um, with some more sanity now. And, uh, and hopefully that some justice is going to be done as well. Yeah. yeah. I, I think the repercussions, though, of it will make your work even vital um, because I just oh, think I say this to my trainees all the time. There's never been a greater need for my work ever. Yeah. And I just published a, a couple of uh, books in recent years. Um, and I did not have a pandemic in mind, but uh, drawing your stress away and then, well, this is your body talking have been the Bibles for some of my um, followers through this period. I, I get emails all the time saying these books saved my life. I'm scribbling my feelings out and, you know, I'm dialoguing with my body. I, I've, I've stayed as calm and centered as possible by using these two books. And these are my most recent books. I call them my prequels because they really are a great introduction to all my other 21 books. <laughs> I, I took uh, the, the greatest hits and distilled it all down into these two workbooks and uh, they really work. Yeah, I, and I think workbooks like instruct the, uh, the, the, uh, the left brain like you actually have to do something and not just read. Yeah, so, um, yeah. Well, yeah. thank you. Thank you again. Michelle. It's been a pleasure, Colin. Great seeing you again. Great to see you too. Take care. Keep up the good work. A huge thank you to Lucia. I mean, so many great takeaways as usual. Um, feel privileged to uh, speak to her. You know, a couple things that come to mind is just how much the conventional school system rips away creativity from curriculums. And, you know, I think that is why being an unconventional thinker is so attractive to me, is how do these people think for themselves? And oftentimes pain is the start of that process. Also, how these times Lucia's work is desperately needed, maybe now more than ever. If you like the show, please leave a review. It will help grow the show. Until next time, this is Kawan Saluja reminding myself to always be growing spiritually.